I'm speaking with Dr. Hannah Ritchie. Hannah is a senior researcher and the head of research at Our World in Data and author of the new book, Not the End of the World, How We Can Be the First Generation to Build a Sustainable Planet. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Hannah. Thanks very much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Why agricultural productivity is so low in sub-Saharan Africa. How, yeah, how does labour productivity in sub-Saharan Africa compare to other regions? So if we think, if we like use a metric for it as like the amount of like value you'd get per worker. So like, like the economic value per person working on the farm. Like so the, the, the average for sub-Saharan Africa is like half of the global average. Oh, wow. That is much lower than I would have guessed you would have said. It's like half of the global average, but it's like 50 times lower than you'd get in like the UK or the US. I spoke too soon, <laughs> but that's much more No, shocking. it gets worse. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> so if you look at some countries within sub-Saharan Africa, they're like half of the sub-Saharan Africa average. So there you're talking about like 100 times less than you'd get in the UK or the US. That's hard to, yeah, that's hard to even fathom. So you like put that in context, like the value that like an average farmer in the US might create in three to four days is the same as a Tanzanian farmer for like the entire year. Why is it so low in South Saharan Africa? So I think the there's a couple of reasons. One is that the farms are really small. So often the, the amount of crop or like value you get out is is quite low. And, and maybe we'll come on to crop yields. So like low crop yields, you get a, like not that much out. But you also, as you said, you you can't you can't afford machinery or you can't afford fertilizers or pesticides or like things that would you would basically substitute for like human power inputs. So it just means you need lots of like hands on deck to like keep the farm going and keep it like at that baseline level of productivity. So you don't get much out and you just need like lots of people working on the farm. Okay. Um and then the other thing that, that seems to be really low here is land productivity, which feels a bit more intuitive to me. Um, is that basically how much crop yield you'd get from, for example, an acre of land? Yeah, exactly. So it's like what we would, like, I think what most people would call like a crop yield. So say we each have like a hectare to grow wheat. If you got four tonnes and I got two tonnes, your productivity would be, or your land productivity would be twice what I get. So it's, yeah, it's just how much you get from a unit of land. There's a couple of factors that come into it. One is, as you say, the quality of land. So like the texture of the soil, the natural like nutrient density, like carbon content of the soil, like how well it drains, like all of these affect like how well a crop will grow. But there are also ways that we can like change some of those aspects. So we can use irrigation um, or drainage to determine how much water is in the soil or we can apply our own nutrients through fertilizers so there's like natural conditions but there's also inputs that we can use to change that cool cool okay and then again i'm guessing land productivity is is much lower in south saharan africa how how much lower is it relative to other regions yeah so again it's very low um like one way we can like compare is using like we would use like cereal yields because in most regions mm -hmm. grow some cereals. So if you compare the average in sub-Saharan Africa, it's about half that of India, which is less than half of the global average. So it's pretty poor. 
And then if you compare that to like richer countries, it's like four to five times lower. But then again, there are like countries within sub-Saharan Africa that will get like half again of of that regional average. So like there are some countries where you're talking about getting 10 times less per unit of land than in rich countries. The sustainability equation. I've read the first few chapters of the book and really enjoyed it. And early on, you make the claim that kind of surprised me. Um, so this is a claim that the world has actually never been sustainable. And yeah, I, I didn't, I just found that really counterintuitive uh, until I read more about what you meant. Um, can you explain that? Sure. So like, I, I get that it's a controversial claim and it does seem counterintuitive. I think probably where you came from on that initially was that you were thinking, I, I'm guessing you were thinking about purely environmental sustainability, where you're thinking like all of the big environmental problems that we face. So the rise in energy consumption and CO2 and um, plastic pollution, etc., like has basically happened in the last 200 years or so, like most of it probably in the last 50 years. Yep. So if you look at those trends, it's like everything, all this bad stuff has happened right. in the last 50 years. And like before it was all fine and there was none of these problems. And that's where I also would have came from, from an environmental background. And I think when you frame it as that, there's like a large amount of truth to the fact that our ancestors were sustainable. Like they didn't have really large environmental impacts. And there I would say that that's mostly true. There are some areas, like it's not the case that they lived in perfect balance with nature. There's Yeah, it does seem like one of those things that's really easy to romanticize. Um, yeah. yeah, like indigenous peoples uh didn't cause harm to the environment they lived harmoniously with it or something yeah and there's like clear examples where there just was large impacts like one key one is if you look at the change in in biodiversity specifically mammal biodiversity over time you see that mammals have got smaller and smaller and this has been happening over millennia this is not just the last wow. few centuries right okay so and like a large part of that was was over hunting the humans were hunting and right. and at the time the populations were really really small like we're talking about a global population of maybe 5 million at the time and more than 100 of the world's largest mammal species went extinct oh, and wow. most of that is thought to be through through over hunting so it's right. not the case that there was zero impact. But I actually accept, I accept the argument that environmentally, our ancestors mostly lived with a very low environmental impact. And recently that's been knocked off. Yeah. But where I would contest the sustainability part is if you think about why their environmental impact was so low, it's because their populations were tiny. And the reason their populations were tiny is because child mortality was so high. So half of children were dying before reaching puberty. Right. So God. you had really high fertility rates, so like lots of children being born, but half of them were dying. So you basically didn't have really population growth and populations were tiny. So my contest there is is like, is that really what we're saying sustainability is? Like Right. Right. Are we going for a sustainable world where what we mean is like, well, we're not harming the environment because uh, so many of our children die that we're not growing as a population. Right. That so, seems, yeah. yeah, like not the goal. Yeah. So if you care about human suffering, to me, you also need to consider that in this definition we want to adopt of sustainability. So I think they are like my definition there. And it's, it's kind of the definition of sustainable development. Uh, which is like a kind of newish but also controversial uh, like 
term for some people, is we need to have low environmental impacts to perfect future generations and other species. But we also need to meet the needs of the current generation. Like we want to have low human suffering today, but also protect future generations and other species. So to me, like the sustainability equation has two halves there. And I think we've never achieved both halves at the same time. Like our ancestors might have achieved the environmental part, but they didn't achieve the human suffering. We've kind of flipped the other way where we're doing much better on meeting human needs, but it's came at the cost of the environment. And my core argument in the book is that like, I think we could be the first generation that does achieve both at the same time if we do the right things. How buying environmentally friendly technology helps low-income countries. I think that often the, the economics and the political lens often like go very closely together. Like I often get the question from people of, there's always this question of like, changing individual behaviours, like what impact does that actually have? And am I wasting my time? Because it's all about systemic change. Or you hear this argument often from from countries, some of them very rich, like the UK, for example, where people say like the UK only emits 1% of carbon emissions. Right. Like what we do just doesn't matter in the scheme of things. But like the key argument I'm making, whether it's like talking about like individual changes or changes for countries which now are quite small emitters is that the the impacts they have like really have these large spillover impacts on on one on policies but also on the economics of the technologies right so an example of that on an individual level if you like one way you can have additional impact is on the the signal you're sending to policies that you care about the environment and you care about climate change. But there's also a really strong like technology economics signal you're sending where if you buy an electric car, you're showing to the market, hey, there's a big market over here for people to serve, come and serve us. Right. Or like installing solar power or um, buying meat substitutes instead. Like what you're doing there, as we discussed, we need to make these technologies cheaper for people in low-income countries for them to have as the default option. And by buying those, you're basically bringing down the cost curve for all of these technologies. Right, so it's right. like your impact is way beyond your like individual thing. It's like this collective pulling the market in a certain direction. Right, okay. So the argument is something like, while you might not uh, think it's that important for you to buy an electric car from like your own environmental perspective, because generally cars in the UK have technology built in them that means you won't be emitting loads, even if you have a non-electric car. But if loads of people in the UK buy electric cars, then the electric car technology just gets really good and drives the price down. And if the price is low enough, other countries, uh, lower and middle income countries might eventually get to just like go right to the electric car and skip over some of that intermediate step where they're polluting loads. Right. I mean, I think that, I mean, that's, that wasn't strictly true because because um, cars in the, the UK, like they might have lower like local air pollutants, but they still emit a lot of carbon. Okay. Right. So it's not that they like don't emit a lot of carbon, but yeah, like that's the core of the argument that by like, basically what pulled these prices down was people buying them when they were really expensive. And and that's the only reason that they've come down in cost is because they were they were being deployed because people were were buying them when they were expensive, um, and we never would have seen these costs decline if we hadn't invested in them them early. Yeah, um, 
That feels really cool to me as a way. Um, I guess I'd like not had the visceral sense that like, I don't know, rich people in California all buying Teslas was like that important for the world. But I guess if it's, um, yeah, creating this flow through effect where like it makes Teslas and the technology that makes Teslas possible much cheaper, uh, then they will just eventually exist elsewhere in the world uh, much sooner than they might have otherwise. Right. The price decline in these technologies is like enormous. So like, for example, if you look at batteries, so like the big hurdle for electric cars for a long time was the cost of the batteries. So if you go back to like 1990, like I calculated the, like the cost of a Tesla battery that you'd use in a Tesla car today, would of course like $1 million. And it now costs wow. like 13 grand. <laughs> wow. And that like, is amazing. And like, so like, I, I, I often get this, like when I think about like uh, climate action and like, I've been really frustrated by like, how slow progress has been and it seems like we've not been making progress. But when you think about the cost of these technologies a couple of decades ago, it's very obvious why we weren't making a lot of progress. Like no one was buying a car that cost a million pounds for right. the for the battery. Um, and it's the same for like solar and wind, for example. They were just way too expensive for the world to adopt. And part of why I'm so optimistic is because all of these technologies are now very, very cost competitive. It's just a completely different situation from where we were even a decade ago, where it just seemed completely unfeasible that we would that the world would pay loads of money to install them. And now it just seems obvious because they're actually, in many cases, cheaper. Like the 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 cost of solar panels has fallen by more than ninety percent in the last decade. In the last decade. Four ways to change our food system to solve several environmental issues at once. I guess you said that uh, we really need to kind of radically change our food system. And I don't really know what that looks like. I guess you've mentioned eating less meat. And so maybe part of it is uh, eating more plant-based food or some other kind of innovative food thing. But is there more to that, to that radically different food system? So, yeah. So I think the there, it's probably not as complicated as it seems. There's like just a couple of like big massive low-hanging fruits oh cool yeah what are those like the biggest one is is eating less meat and dairy and there i would say specifically beef it's very obvious to me that we're not gonna switch overnight and we might not we might just not get rid of meat consumption completely like we might just always have a world where there's some meat consumption so i think there's there's massive gains there from like the meat that we do produce there's definitely much better ways of doing it and like much more efficient ways of doing it. So there is like a large, there's like low hanging fruit there and like optimizing where we produce the meat to reduce the environmental impact. The third one is increasing crop yields, which just has massive environmental benefits. And then the final like really big one is just reducing food waste and losses. And there, there's two components to it. One is what we call food losses, which is like almost unintentional losses. So that often happens between like the farm and it reaching like the consumer or like the retail stage where like people don't want to lose the food because they're losing money. But 
it might go off because they can't afford refrigeration or they don't, it gets damaged in transport. or So there's various reasons why you would unintentionally lose food. And actually, those losses are like pretty high. Policy change doesn't have to be slow. I think one big lesson is just that we, as you said, like I think we often see these problems as like, inevitably they're going to take a long time and action just has to be slow. And I think there's just this problem, but like also like some other like specific examples where like change can happen fast if we actually like put our mind to it. So I think like it's not inevitable that progress on these has to be slow. Like we address this like relatively quickly. The acid rain story like for like many countries was like also very fast. If you look at China, like when China wants to take action, it works very quickly. And I'm not saying that that's a model that other countries can emulate for various reasons. But it just, there's just several examples where it's clear to me that like it's not inevitable that they have to be slow. I think often politicians or policymakers, for example, can get away with the argument of, yeah, it's just going to take a long time. Like these things just take a long time. But I actually think if you can bring real examples where where that's just not the case, then it's like very hard for them to retreat from that. Like I always make this argument, um, again, coming back to earlier where we're discussing like relatively small emitters today and like what role they can play in actually addressing climate change. And there I think there's a very clear example of if a country takes action and almost provides a model for which other countries can follow, then it makes a massive impact. And there, there's the speed thing. So, you, so for example, you see Norway. So Norway, nearly all of the cars sold in Norway today are electric, and which like is just way ahead of anyone else in the world. And it's done that very quickly. So no other country can use the excuse that they can't scale electric vehicles very quickly because we have examples that it's happening. I guess Norway is really wealthy, so there will be barriers for many countries to doing that. But um, for, yeah, for some, for yeah, for like the poorest by far, um, for sure that's the case. But like even China, for example, so China, like more than a third of a new cars sold in China are electric. It's, wow. In the next few years, I would expect it's like within the next three years, maybe it's going to be more than half of new cars sold. Wow. In, like it's moving really quickly. So I, I, I think there will be examples. Uh, 